You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. So we are going to switch up our service order over the next several weeks, and uh, we're going to use Matthew 6, Lord's Prayer, as kind of a framework to get into the Psalms. Um, If you think about when Jesus first uh, called his disciples, and as they walked with him, they heard something pretty astounding when they heard Jesus pray. Over in Luke 11, which is the same account as the model's prayer in Matthew 6, the disciples come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, the reason they ask that question is because they had not heard anybody pray quite like Jesus prayed. They, they were more accustomed to the high ritualistic prayers that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would often offer in the temple and the temple proper. And that's what they've been taught. They've been taught to, to pray in a specific ritualistic way, but the relationship between the disciples and God their Father was somewhat stale and cold. So when they heard Jesus start out, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It froze them right there. Because first of all, they not heard anyone, anyone pray to God and call God Father. Now, of course, Jesus in that unique relationship as the Son of God certainly had the opportunity to say to God, Father. But what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 is he says to his disciples, okay, guys, if you want to learn to pray like I pray, then here's how you start out. Our Father. If you search the Old Testament, you'll find out that God is only referred to as a father just a couple of times. So this was a completely foreign idea to the disciples. So what we want to do is over the next few weeks, we're going to use the model prayer as kind of like our starting point. And today, verse 9 is where we're starting. He says, pray then like Liz, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's where we want to start. And what Jesus does is he teaches his disciples, he teaches them to start out in a mode of worship. That, that in our prayer time, we start out in a mode of worship. Now, whether you do that at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end, that's not as much as important as it is Are you worshiping God through prayer? But before we get into the psalm that we're going to look at today, I want to ask you a question. And I want us just to kind of be honest about prayer. If you're honest about one of the reasons you don't often pray, oftentimes we'll say it's because we're busy. We've got too many things going on. But but I wonder if we took out our cell phones today and we looked at our time on our cell phone. You know, you got that little thing in there that charts your time. You know, every now and then you'll get a little alert. Oh, you were, you used your phone 17% more this week than you did last week. I wonder if we looked at that chart, could we find time? I think we could. So I don't think it's a time issue. I think if we're really honest, we've come to the conclusion that prayer is rather boring. Now I know we're all Christian people. We would never say that, right? We would never say that prayer is boring, but Sometimes the way we live out our faith, we're living out our faith as though 
prayer was one of the most boring things. And I think the reason we think that is because of rituals, practices, things that we've learned down through our life that quite frankly, is not even rooted in scripture. So how would the disciples pray? How, how would they pray as Jewish men who now are followers of Jesus by the time we get to Matthew 6? And this is right in the middle of the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, this model prayer. And how would these men, how would they have thought about prayer? Well, for Jewish men, they would have thought about prayer in the context of the Psalms. And I am convinced that the reading of the Psalms takes us to a deeper place in our prayer with God. So think of it this way, it, it, the more we ignore the Psalms, the more we lean to our own understanding about prayer, the more we lean to these models that we've learned, maybe as kids, we kind of stay in the waiting pool of, of prayer, kind of where it's only about ankle deep. But when we get into the Psalms, we'll find ourselves praying things, saying things to God that we never thought we would ever say. So turn with me over to Psalm 148. So Jesus has told the disciples to pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the, 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 the disciples, being Jewish men who had memorized the Psalms, they would have no doubt when they thought about prayer in relation to what Jesus was teaching them, they would have thought about the Psalms. So let's take a look at one. Because I'm convinced that the deepest prayer, our prayer life going to a deeper place, is going to be found in the Psalms. Look at Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Now, there is a framework to this psalm, and I believe that David wrote this psalm. And there's a framework to this psalm that I want you to see right at the very beginning. David starts out in the throne room of God in his praise and worship through prayer. He starts out in the very throne room of God where there are angels, hosts of angels. The Bible teaches us that there are so many angels, there's so many hosts of angels that we don't even know the number, but it is a vast myriad of angels. And you know what those angels are doing right now? You know what they do continuously? They praise and worship a holy God. That's what they were created to do. So David starts in the very throne room of God, and David begins to imagine in his mind's eye, oh, what is it like to be in that place? What is it like to worship God with the angels? And that's where he begins. And then in verse 3, he begins to come down into the cosmos itself. So, so David begins in the throne room of God, and then he begins to look at the cosmos, the stars, the sun, the moon. I would imagine that David, as he's writing this psalm, he's considering maybe two or three nights before when he was out on his front porch. If his, if his, king, if his uh, mansion had a front porch or a back porch, I would imagine that David was out there. and Maybe it was one of those nights of a full moon. We have saw some here recently. And sometimes that moon looks kind of a blue. It looks kind of an orange on some nights. Maybe David was sitting out on his back porch writing this psalm, and he's praying to God, and he's considering what's happening in the midst of the angels in God's throne room. And then he looks at the moon, and he goes, my goodness, God. What an awesome and powerful and creative God you are. To, to put that moon and to hang it at just the right place 
just for me. He says that the sun and the moon praise him. All you shining stars praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Look at, it, look at this. For he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. And he gave a decree and they shall not pass away. What David says is that, that the very sheer fact that the sun and the moon and the stars and the cosmos has been created, David says that is a reason to praise and honor and worship God. Uh, many months ago, it's probably even longer than a year ago, Pastor Bobby preached a message here one Sunday talking about the vastness of space and how big some of these planets are that are out there. Massive, massive planets. And, and the idea is, is that God created all of that out in the cosmos. And, and the bigger telescopes we get and the more powerful technology we have, the further we look into space, the more we realize just how small we are and just how much is out there that we don't even know about. So David, as he's sitting on his back porch and he looks up at the stars, all he can see is the little shimmering lights in the sky. But you and I, we have the ability to, through a Hubble telescope, look far, far out into the reaches of this universe. And what we find is, is that the universe is massive, far bigger than we ever realized, far more than David could have ever imagined. And the whole point of it is, is that as we build this technology, as we build these telescopes, and we look out there, the whole point of it is, is that we would sit back in our chairs and we would do exactly what God is doing in David's life on his back porch, where we say, God, you are awesome. You are powerful. There's nothing greater than you. And you deserve all worship. You deserve all exaltation. There is no one like you. And quite frankly, that's what we need right now today. <laughs> You've been feeling the pressures of this week, have you not? You've been feeling the weight of what's going on in Afghanistan, which is thousands of miles away from us. You've been brokenhearted because you've got friends who serve in the military. And you're struggling with all that's taking place this week. But not only that, we've got a pandemic that is running rampant. We have a hospital that is full. We've got workers in this church who go to that hospital every day in the ER or another hospital in our region. And they give of their time and their talents to try to make people feel comfortable and get better through the technology they've been given. You're feeling the weight. If there's ever been a time that we need to sit down on our back porch and look at that moon and look at that sun and look at those stars and say, God, you are an awesome, mighty, powerful God. The sheer fact that they were created, the sheer fact that they exist is a testimony of God's power and goodness. The Bible talks about general revelation. And what that means is, is that God has revealed himself in his creation. Listen, you are not a mistake. This earth is not a mistake. You are not the result of a happenstance. You're not some kind of accident that just happened to be. You're, you're here at a very particular time. You were born on a particular day, and you're going to die on a particular day, and that particular day's in between your birth and your death is not an accident, folks. You have purpose, and there's meaning to your life. What does it mean to praise God? What does it mean to honor him? It means to look around at all that he's done, to lift up our heads, see the sun, see the moon, see the stars, and in that moment, be in awe of a powerful, beautiful, mighty God who holds it all in the palm of his hand and who spoke and brought it all into being. We're getting ready to sing another song, and it's a song where we show thankfulness to God 
So as we sing this song together in worship this morning, I want us to think about the power and the beauty of this God who's created it all and how that he deserves all of your praise and all of your gratitude this morning. I know you're probably feeling a little heavy today, and I understand that because I feel it too. Psalm 148, verse 7. So David has started in the throne room of God. He's moved down into the cosmos, the stars and the sun and the moon, and he's given praise to a holy God. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth. Notice what David does now. He comes down. And by the way, this follows the creation order in Genesis. And he comes down to the earth, and he begins to look around and consider all that he's seen. He says, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all the deeps, fire and hell, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. So here's what David does. David now is coming down to where he lives. And I'm imagining that as he's walking through his daily life, and maybe one day he's on the seashore, maybe he's, he's there on the shore of the Mediterranean, and maybe he sees the ships come in, and he sees what they've caught in their nets. And when they go out into the, into the ocean, and when they go out there and they cast their nets, they catch all kinds of things. Just like when you go fishing, uh, deep sea fishing, maybe you're not really sure what you're going to pull in on that hook. And here's David. Maybe he's walking along, and he sees what comes in, and he sees all the variations of fish. And maybe there's some things in the net that he didn't intend to catch. And, and David's walking along, and you know what it does? It prompts him to think, my goodness, God, what an awesome God you are. To create all of this diversity, to create all of this beauty, and quite frankly, most of it David had never seen. As a matter of fact, all these years later, there's still parts of the ocean that we've not even explored yet. I was looking at this, just the, just the beauty of what's in the ocean and all the different life that's there. And of course, you can always find somebody who's done a study, right? 3,000, 3,000 researchers got together a few years ago and they wanted to do a, a comprehensive, in-depth study of the species of the oceans. And, and so they, they embarked on this 3,000, probably PhDs and people who were trained in studying the ocean and wildlife. And they spent years studying this, and this is what they found. They found and discovered 6,000 species that had never even been seen before. So just some guys and some women deciding that they're going to study the ocean, when they begin to study, they find out, hey, we've never seen this before. Hey, what is this? We've never seen that before. 6,000 species that they were able to uncover and document. But get this, 6,000 is a small part of the whole. For what we know right now, there's 250,000 different species of ocean life, a quarter of a million. And I would imagine that is if we did another five or ten year study with another 6,000 scientists, we'd probably find several thousand more species that we've never seen. Did you know that people can go into the Amazon jungle and find snakes and bugs and birds that we didn't even know existed? That David, when he's standing on that shore looking at the fishing bugs come in, he may only see three or four or five or six or ten species, yet God created all of it. Why did he do that? Why did God create all those stars out there that we'll never be able to see?
Why did God create all this animal life in the Amazon jungle and in the ocean that we in all of our, in all of our arrogance that we think we know everything and we find out that we don't know anything? Why did God do that? Because God knew one day that we'd be able to explore. And God knew that one day we'd be able to have a telescope that looks out into the stars and that we'd have submarines that could go into the deepest parts of the ocean. And the whole point of it is that when we get down in that ocean or when we get looking out into the night sky, that we'll be able to see the vastness and the beauty and the power of God and that we will sit back in our chair, we'll sit back on our porch and we'll go, my goodness, what a holy, powerful, creative, beautiful God is that we serve. But what has mankind done? Mankind has said that it's all there because of an accident. That all those species in the ocean and all those stars in the sky just happen to be. Notice what else he says. The mountains and all the hills, the fruit trees and the cedars, the beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Those pesty insects that get in your house. David would look at that and go, my goodness, what a powerful God. When he would walk by those huge cedars, the, the Old Testament speaks of the cedars of Bashan. They were massive trees, beautiful, vast. David would walk by them. As a matter of fact, the temple was built. His house was built out of them. He would walk by and he would look at that and he'd go, God, you're so powerful, you're so awesome, and you're so beautiful that you could create something so immaculate as this. He says here, the fire and the hail and snow and the mist, the stormy wind fulfilling his word. As we gather this morning, out in the Gulf is a massive hurricane that is bearing down on New Orleans yet again. And I don't want to make light of that at all because many of you, you lost everything in the hurricanes that we had here. So there's no way that I would ever want to wish on anyone a hurricane, especially the power of the one that's in the Gulf right now that may come ashore, maybe as a four, they're even talking about a five now. The devastation that will be the result of that, I would never wish on anyone. But folks, let's take a moment and let's step back from that for just a moment. And let's look at that storm out in the Gulf, those satellite pictures. And what do we see? We see a, an organized storm. We see power. We see incredible, incredible energy within that that's being held together by something. Humanity has tried many times to try to figure out how can we, how can we break that storm up? How can, we, how can we do something to break up a hurricane? Listen, it was never in our hands and it never will be. The God of this universe controls the very essence of that storm. So when I look at it, I'm reminded of the power of the God we serve. David when he would look at the snow falling, when he would look at the mist in the mornings, when he would look at the, the rain, when he would look at the storms, David would realize that it points to a holy God. And in that moment, he would worship. Is that how you're living your life? Is that how your prayer life is? David, as he walks through his life, as he, as he does what God has called him to do, he takes the opportunities to praise, and then he writes those things down. How many times have you given God praise for that storm that is outside, that rain that is falling, that snowstorm that you see in the mountains, those, those white-capped mountains? How many times have you given praise and honor and exaltation to a holy God with that much power, that much creativity, and that much ability? You know, oftentimes when we think of prayer as being boring, 
It's because we've, been, we've learned some things, some bad habits. And we think of our prayer life as we have to do this. <laughs> we, we've got to check the box for the day. The pastor said we need to do it, so we're going to do it. So we'll carve out some time in our schedule. And maybe we'll get alone in a room somewhere. And then we don't know what to say. And then our phone buzzes. And then we begin to think about our to-do list. So what we do is we, we pray through a quick prayer, a laundry list of things, and then we move on. And then we wonder why it is that prayer is not a vital part of our lives. It's because we're not praying the way David prayed. We're not praying the way the disciples prayed. They're not going throughout their day looking and seeing all the beauty of this world and all that God has revealed to himself in that general revelation, in the creation, and pausing and saying, God, thank you. God, thank you for that bowl of Cheerios I had this morning. God, thank you that I can turn, over, turn on my faucet in my house and I can get clean water when 75 to 80% of the world doesn't have that. God, thank, thank you that I can walk into Aldi and the, the shelves are lined with food and I've got money in my pocket or on this card and I get to walk out of here with a shopping cart full of food when 80% of the world is having to get their food from a dump. Is this sounding like your prayer life? Day in, day out, not locked around, not locked just in a room somewhere with our eyes closed and our hands like this. I'm talking about throughout the day, praying and worshiping and honoring God as we drive down the road, as we look at the blue sky, as we see that big moon hanging, as we see the lightning streaking across the sky. David was saying, God, I exalt you, I worship you, I praise you, I honor you. He says all the beasts and all the livestock, the creeping things and the flying birds. Maybe David is walking along and he looks up and he sees a bird flying through the, through the sky and he thinks, my goodness, what a miracle that is. Because in David's day, nothing else was flying except birds. You and I, we have planes going across the sky. We don't even think about it. But David looks at that bird and he goes, God, I praise you for the ability that you've given this bird to fly something that David would have loved to have been able to do that you and I get the opportunity to do. David is praising and exalting God for it. But then he gets down to verse 11 and he begins to get to God's pinnacle of creation. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all the rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old children, old men and old children, old men and children, <laughs> let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. So David has started in the throne room of God with the angels and the host and the myriads. He's come down to the sun and the moon and the stars. He comes down all the way to the earth. And on that earth is humanity, placed on a blue planet that was perfectly placed for us to be able to live and to thrive. That's not by accident. There are scientists, and there's lots of them out there, who give all kinds of figures and numbers to this cosmos, but one that caught my attention is that planet Earth is one in seven quintillion of a chance. What does that mean? What does quintillion mean? Well, it's seven. Seven quintillion is seven with 20 zeros. Um, that's probably the next amount our government's getting ready to borrow, but that's another sermon on another day. <laughs> did I just say that? Yeah, I did. 
know the earth is a one in seven quintillionth of a chance. What does that mean? This big Hubble telescope that they've developed that can look out, I mean, a long way into the cosmos. Here's what they've been looking for. And they've been looking for years and years and years. There are other solar systems with a star or a sun and planets circling it. There's several of them, lots of them. They've been able to find quite a few. But the one thing they've not been able to find is a planet that is exactly the right distance from the sun to sustain life. You see, our Earth is exactly the correct distance from the sun by which we're, if we're a little further out, we'd be too cold, we'd all freeze to death. If we were a little bit too close, we'd all burn up. There's no way any plant life or animal life could survive. The oceans would evaporate or freeze over, depending. So it's something the scientists call the Goldilocks zone, and they've been scouring the universe as best they can to find that star sun with a planet circling that is just the right distance from that star for life, maybe, maybe just possibly to occur. Guess what, they've not found it. Not found it yet at all. So here we are, this blue planet at exactly the right distance from the sun, circling the sun at just the right rate so that you could be placed here for such a time as this. Did God do all of that just so that you would be born, live a few years, and then die? Yes, he did. That's what David realizes. David doesn't have all the science that we have, but when he looks around, he says, the kings of earth and all the peoples, the rulers of earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, exalt the name of the Lord because he's worthy to be exalted. Everywhere David looked, he saw the power and the majesty of a holy God. Is that how you're living your life? Christ follower, is that how you are living out your days? Or are we so bent low and bent down with the troubles and cares of this world, and there's plenty of them to choose from, that not only do we not see God, but we don't see his power, we don't see his majesty, we don't see his beauty. The very sheer fact that the sun and the moon and the stars were hung in place, their sheer existence testifies to God. Your existence, you being knit together in your mother's womb, being born at a time that God ordained, you are here for a purpose. You are here for, you are not an accident. You are not some kind of cosmic accident where all the right things just kind of came together and you have no purpose. You have incredible purpose and God is testifying to your purpose and to your mission and to the beauty that he has given us through this creation. Did you know that your eye, just your single eye, the, veil, the fact that you can see all the various colors, that you have depth perception, that you can distinguish from color to color, you can distinguish from what's something far away and something close, that there's never been a piece of technology built on this earth that even comes close to what your eye can do. There is not a device on this earth that can do what your ears do. There's not a device on this earth that comes close to your human body. And God says, I've created you and I've placed you on this perfect planet, the perfect distance from the sun, to live out a purpose. David understood that. He says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. Have you ever wondered why it is that we focus so much of our ministry attention on children and student ministry. Have you ever wondered that? If you look at the budget, 
If you look at how we, we prioritize things, you're going to find out that we prioritize children's ministry, student ministry. We want to focus on that. Why is that? It's because we want those kids and we want those students as early and as young as possible to come to saving faith in Christ and live out their life of worship and praise, looking at this earth, looking at the beauty of it, and going, my goodness, what a God I serve. This is why we start new ministries. This is why we, we emphasize serving in Awana, serving in, in kids' lives, serving in student ministry. It's because we want to see the light bulb go off in the minds of our young people of the beauty and the power of a holy God because it would change their life. Look at verse 14. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. I, I was looking at that raised up a horn. And there, there are things that you'll see in the Psalms as you read them. And I'm gonna encourage you that every day read a Psalm, every day. Drop in any of them, it doesn't matter which one. The Lord will guide you to the one you need on that particular day. But just read a psalm every day. Some of them are long, some of them are short. Read one every day. When David talks about raising up a horn, what is he talking about? Is he talking about raising up an instrument? I mean, that would make sense that when the people would come into the city to worship, when they would come in to celebrate those high days, there would be trumpets that would be blown. Is that what David's talking about? Actually, it's not. It's when David was walking around and he came across maybe an oxen, an, an animal that was used in Israel quite a bit for, for plowing and for everything else. And the horns would be taken off of those animals and used for horns and used for decorations. As a matter of fact, the secular kings of the day would, would often put horns on their crowns to show power and strength. What David is talking about is not a brass horn or an instrument. What he's talking about is the horn on an oxen. So what he's referring to is the strength of that oxen kind of resides in its horns. If you've ever been to a rodeo or if you've ever watched one on TV, and you see these guys who are dressed up in a clown suit, they get out there and this, this raging bull with horns is trying to basically kill the clown. What does he do? He puts his head down, and when he runs towards the clown, he throws his head up. David maybe is walking by a pasture one day. Maybe he's walking by a pen, and he sees an ox. Or maybe one day he saw someone who almost got gore with an ox, and even when he sees that, he goes, my goodness, God, that reminds me of your power and your strength. And so here he says, he raised up a horn for his people. For some, it was a sign of power, for kings, they would put it on their crowns. They would put it in their kingdom. They would put it in their mansions. David says here that it's a symbol of strength. You could, you could say right here where it says he raised up a horn. What we could say is that God has given his people strength, great, powerful strength. Think about, think about the nation of Israel. Think about where they came from. You have God who speaks to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, come up out of that land that you live, and I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. And Abraham, I'm going to make some promises to you. I'm going to take care of you. The nations that bless you, I will bless them. I will make your offspring as, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to give you, and that will be your land, and that land will flow with milk and honey, and I'm going to take good care of you, but you're going to be people that are set apart for my purposes, and you're going to be a light to the world. God reaffirms that covenant with Isaac and with Jacob. He reaffirms and expands that covenant with Moses. 
Later on in 2 Samuel 7, that God speaks to David about his reign and about his kingdom and about what it means to be a covenant kingdom. So for Israel and for the people who read this psalm, when they got to verse 14 and it says that they raised up a strength or a horn for the people, for Israel, that was the covenant. If you're reading the Old Testament, the covenant is always in the background. That God made his promises and he keeps every one of those promises. Think about it. God allowed the Israelite nation, which was only 70 people, to go to Egypt. And God said that they would be there for 400 years. But it wasn't long before there was a new Pharaoh in charge, and he enslaved all of those people. But at the same time, the nation of Israel turned from 70 people into a million plus. God was keeping his promises even when they were enslaved. And then exactly when God said that they would come out, God sends Moses, the most unlikely of all leaders, a man who's in his old age at this point, to go to Pharaoh and look at the most powerful man on the universe or in the, on the planet, look at Pharaoh and say, uh, you're going to let them go? <laughs> Pharaoh says, no, ain't happening. I'm not giving, letting anyone go. And God brought him to his knees. The nation of Israel would grow in power and strength. They would they would make it to a land that God promised them. They would go in and take that land under God's direction and his power. Later on, the nation would turn its back on God. God would judge the nation through Assyria and Babylon. And he would tell his people, look, even though I'm going to judge you, there's going to be a limit to this judgment. Well, at some point, you're going to go back to your land. Even through all that Israel did, what's running in the background is the covenant promises that God made to them. And so when David considers all that God said and all that God did, he says, God, your name is to be exalted because you've given us a strength in Israel that quite frankly we didn't have. You've let us conquer nations that we should have never been able to conquer. You've let us gain wealth and power by which we could have never gained on our own. God, you have given us a land, you've given us a temple, you've given us walls and gates, you've given us food, you've given us prominence, we even lost it all, and, and eventually they retained it all again. God gave it to them again. So the power, the strength of the nation of Israel is the covenant promises, but what about our strength? Do we have a horn? Do we have strength and power that God has given to us? Turn over to Luke chapter 1. I want you to see this imagery as it goes into the New Testament. And no doubt, with this imagery, it connects back to the Psalms. Luke chapter 1, the Christmas story. This is Zechariah and Elizabeth who had prayed and begged God for a son, for a child. And then, and then when God finally does answer, when Zechariah's in the temple one day, he's visited by a powerful being who says, you're going to have a son. And he's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the one that was promised who will lead the way for Messiah to come. You know what Zechariah did? He doubted it. And this angel said, okay then, uh, you're not going to be able to speak for a while then. So through all of that, Elizabeth conceives. And in this part of chapter 1, John the Baptist is born. Not only a promise kept to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but a promise kept to Israel that there would be a Messiah would come. And John the Baptist is the one, the forerunner, who comes before a Messiah. And at this particular moment, in the womb of Mary, the Messiah has been conceived. Not through Joseph, 
but through Mary and the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Zechariah says as he's finally able to open his mouth. What does he do? He praises God. Look at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 69, look at this. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah uses an interesting phrase here, doesn't he? He says in his praise and worship to God, God, you have raised up a horn of salvation. No doubt that flowed right out of the book of Psalms where that horn, of, horn is mentioned seven times in the Psalms. And he says here that there's a horn of salvation, the horn of strength that has been brought to mankind. It is not, it is not John the Baptist. He's not talking about his son. He's talking about the other son who would be born. John the Baptist himself sees Jesus coming years later. And he points to Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of humanity his sandals I'm not even worthy to buckle. John the Baptist knew he wasn't Messiah. Zechariah knew that he wasn't Messiah, but the Messiah is described as a strength, a horn of salvation. So yes, we have a strength, we have a horn, we have a promise. Turn over to Revelation 5. As David lives out his life, he looks at the creation the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the storms, the snow, the dew, the rain. And he says, my goodness, have we got a reason to praise and worship God. But for David, the reason that Israel should be praising God, yes, is for all the creation, but also for the covenant promises. He's saying to Israel, Israel, if you're going to praise God for the sun and the moon and the stars and the trees and the mountains, you certainly should be praising God for the fact that he has kept every single promise to you. But guess what? We have a horn of salvation, a promise that was made and has been kept. It was kept when Mary conceived. It was kept when Jesus was hanging on a cross, dying in agony. God was keeping his promises to us when Jesus resurrected from the grave and ascended back on high. And here in Revelation 5, we fast forward. And get this, we're going into the same throne room that David was imagining in his mind. John, taken up in the spirit, in the very throne room of God where David began his psalm, now John is standing, and he describes what he's seen. And he says that there's a, there's a scroll there, and John very much wants to know what's on that scroll, but unfortunately, there is no one in the, in the throne room of God who is worthy to unroll that scroll. So John begins to lament and he begins to weep and he's brokenhearted that, that there's no one there who is worthy to reveal what's about to happen. Look at verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This elder says to John, John, stop, stop crying. Look right over there. And what the elder sees, Jesus and all of his power and glory and authority. And the elder says to John, John, 
the line of the tribe of Judah, the one who was promised, he has conquered, he has fulfilled, he has done exactly what God had planned for it to happen and to accomplish. Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. Jesus being perfect became that sin sacrifice, the one who knew no sin. He's conquered, he's worthy. John cast his eyes over to see Jesus, look at verse six, and behold, this is what John sees. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. It's perplexing, isn't it? The elder who's in heaven sees Jesus as lion. John, who's just taken up in the spirit, he's, got to, he's, he's going to go back to earth. He's still got some years to live out. When he looks, he sees a lamb slain, but that lamb has seven horns. You think that's a coincidence? No. Those horns signify the strength that, that Jesus, both as a slain lamb and a conquering lion, he is king of kings, he is lord of lords, he is majestic, he is powerful, he is higher than us, he's not like us, yet he dwelt among us, but he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is deserving of all praise and worship. He deserves praise and worship because of the angels. He deserves praise and worship because of the sun and the moon and the earth was hung in space. He deserves praise because he created the the mountains and the seas and the oceans and all that they contain. He created the ant, the cockroach, and the ox. He created everything. He created you. And he placed you on this earth for such a time as this, and he deserves all praise. But wait, there's more. If you've been born again, if you've been brought out of darkness into light, that blood that was shed on that cross was on your behalf, and he resurrected out of that grave. On the third day, he sits in power, and if there's ever been a time that God's people ought to be praising the King of Kings, it's right now. In this moment, in the middle of COVID, in the middle of the disaster in Afghanistan, and a hurricane and in the Gulf, we are called to praise. Will you do it? Will you do it? No longer shall our prayer times be called boring. No longer. You're looking for something to praise God? You're looking for something to pray about? Lift up your eyes. It's all around you. From that infant over in our nursery to that beautiful toddler to that senior adult in the nursing home to that rose to the beautiful music that we get to hear. It's all around you. The birds flying overhead, the snow-capped mountains, the blue sky with those big white puffy clouds that are floating by. The ocean waves coming and going just as they've done since creation. All there testifying to the goodness and the holiness and the beautiful creativity of our holy God that I get to have a relationship with. Father in heaven, I hope, Father, that we can see worship for what it really is. It's not just what happens in this building. It's so much more than that. And Father, in this moment, there are people both online and in this building today that are longing for that kind of purpose, longing for that kind of connection to the Creator 
the only problem is they're trying to fulfill it with everything else the world is offering and finding no hope and no peace. Father, I pray that they would know they're not an accident. They're not a happenstance. Their life is not to be just wrapped up in more parties, more fun, more entertainment, but that their life has purpose. And that purpose is, is to worship and honor the creator that gave them life through a relationship with him, through Jesus Christ, the righteous. If they live their life for anything else, it's a life wasted. And we don't have time to waste. Father, for the believers in this room, may we be reinvigorated in prayer. May we be truly a praying people. Our government needs us to pray. Our school system needs us to pray. Robinson County needs us to be praying. Those overseas who are living under constant persecution and constant hatred, they need the Church of America to be praying. How dare us consider prayer to be some afterthought. May we see it with fresh eyes this morning. And Father, if we need to repent of our prayerlessness, may that happen in these moments as we worship together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.